Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Let me ask a basic question. Does God require sacrifice or is sacrifice beginning with human sacrifice and violence something humans need but which God is intervening into? To begin to answer this question let's look at Matthew chapter 12 verses 1 to 7. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread? which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. There's a major prophetic tradition which Jesus is quoting here. And of course, in talking about the temple, he's saying, I'm greater than the temple. I'm greater than the sacrifices of the temple. And in this tradition that he's quoting, it decries the need for sacrifice. It will connect it with disobedience, evil, murder, And this is going to be echoed by Christ in many places in the New Testament. Jesus is quoting Hosea, which is part of this tradition, and it actually denies that God instituted sacrifice. If you combine this with the human religion and explanation of that religion, that I'm going to appeal to here, Rene Girard's picture of it, in which religion and culture are actually very often a cover for violence, then to understand the death of Christ as a divine necessity, I think is going to misunderstand. No, the death of Christ is actually a human necessity, something not required by God. And to say that it's required by God would conflate the gospel with the evil it is meant to overturn. That is, that sacrifice is a central biblical theme. But is this focus necessitated by God or by humans? How we answer will determine our understanding of the meaning of the death of Christ. Either it's a culminating sacrifice required by God, or it is an intervention into human evil and an end to sacrifice. So Jesus is quoting one of many prophetic texts which depicts sacrifice as conjoined to willful disobedience to God and to rejection of his word. Let's start, if you want to read along, look at Jeremiah 7, 22 to 23. And I'll reference other verses here in this section of Jeremiah. 
For in the day that I brought your ancestors out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to them or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk only in the way that I command you, so that it may be well with you. God, through the prophet here, disclaims any command to sacrifice, and equates sacrifice either directly or indirectly throughout this passage. With their walking, he says in verse 24, in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart. And he describes it as going backward and not forward. Sacrifice, in his description, parallels ignorance. Look at verse 25 to 26. I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear. Instead of obeying and listening, they sacrifice. And this sacrifice does not curb their wickedness. In fact, it seems to enable, in this passage, transition to human sacrifice. Look at verse 31. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And this is, by the way, where we get the, the term, you know, Gehenna, Hinnom to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. Anti-sacrifice is thematic in the Psalms and Prophets. Sacrifice in Psalms 46, sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but you have given me an open ear. Bird offering and sin offering you have not required. In this passage, chapter 40, open ears stands in contrast to sacrifice. While disobedience, it's not directly linked to sacrifice, but in the passage, verse 5, pride and falsehood stand in contrast to those who trust in God. And those who trust in God understand God desires obedience, not sacrifice. And in verse 7 and 8 of this psalm, the full realization of this point is only really going to come with the Messiah. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. O oh my God, your law is within my heart. Many of the verses decrying sacrifice are explicit in connecting it to a misapprehension, a misunderstanding of God. Isaiah 1 is a key passage, reading from verse 11 of Isaiah 1. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked this from your hand? This question then comes amidst a series of accusations on the part of God that these people in verse 4 despise God and are corrupt. They're iniquitous. They're evildoers. Look at verse 5. They are morally sick 
from top to bottom. Here's the verse. From the sole of the foot even to the head. There is nothing sound in them, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds. Verse 15, they presume to hold up blood-covered hands. They're killers. They pray with blood-covered hands. Verse 16 and 17, all of this presumes on the notion that they offer up sacrifices to cover their sins. Instead, here and in Jeremiah, if you remember also in the book of James, what is true religion? Verse 16 and 17, it will involve caring for widows and orphans and ceasing to do evil. A religion which presumes sacrifice covers evil is apparently worthless. Specifically, sacrifice in Hosea, the passage that Jesus is quoting, it is connected to disobedience, but it culminates in murder and religious murder. This is Hosea 6, 6. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So far from the sacrifice enabling love and knowledge, those who sacrifice, verse 7, they dealt treacherously against me. Verse 8, they leave bloody footprints. Again, they're killers. And verse 9, and their priests murder on the way to Shechem. And Shechem was like an alternate Jerusalem for the Jews, the holy place for the northern tribes, where Abraham had received the first divine promise. Now, instead of loyalty, covenant-keeping, which the law, the priesthood was all about, it has resulted in a murderous religion, and this religion reigns. The work of René Girard explains why sacrifice is at the center of violent human culture and religion, and how it is that the gospel intervenes in and halts this human necessity. In Girard's depiction, religious sacrifice is the linchpin. It organizes human violence so that cultures endure and they arise in the midst of spilling blood. And there will always be blood in his picture because of we've talked about mimetic desire. That is, desire is learned. It's imitated. And this gives rise to rivalries between people and rivals desire the same object, and this snowballs in culture into violence. In Gerard's explanation, violence then is directed at a scapegoat. They all channel their violence so that the culture depends upon an original murdered scapegoat. And so religious myth, this is his understanding of the myths, that there's always an original murder victim a historically true account behind the myth. In this story, or in this myth, the victim is deified. So in the Enuma Elish, which is somewhat contemporary with the early chapters of Genesis, Marduk creates the heavens and the earth out of Tiamat's corpse. This is common event in myth. A god dies and then creation. This is true in Japanese myth with Izanami and Izanagi. The islands of Japan flow out of the death of Izanami. Religion and culture, then, do not cure 
this violence, but organize it, direct it onto enemies or victims. And they utilize it behind religious sacrifice, which is then obscured behind myth. And so to be religious or to be cultured under this definition is not to be freed of the instinct to kill, rather the need is sublimated and redirected onto a victim or a group of victims. And this is what Gerard calls a scapegoating mechanism. As I'm saying all this, think of the Old Testament picture of the scapegoat. It blinds those who deploy it. And so Christ, in Gerard's picture, fills the role of the scapegoat so as to expose the blindness. He's not just one more scapegoat, but the blindness presumes the scapegoat is the source of all trouble. And his death then will resolve the problem. And this is true, you can go through religious myth, everything from sickness to drought to fear of destruction by an enemy. And of course, it's in the New Testament, it's the fear that Rome would destroy Israel that points to the need for the crucifixion. The high priest says one man must die to save the nation. So as with every scapegoat, Christ, he's the problem, right? If we can just kill Christ, that will provide the solution. And so the guilt and the payment is loaded onto an innocent victim. And in the words of the psalmist that Jesus quotes, they hated me for no reason. In other words, they are blind. They think the victim is guilty. And Jesus is going to again and again say, I'm innocent. And this is why it's important that Jesus is the spotless lamb. They demonize and criminalize Jesus and he submits himself to their blindness. He says, the words of scripture have to be fulfilled in me. This is Luke twenty-two thirty-seven. He let himself be taken for a criminal. In Gerard's explanation, the victim's guilt is the mainspring of the victim or scapegoating mechanism. So the persecutors always believe in the excellence of their cause. But in reality, they hate without cause. And of course, this is the picture. Even Pilate, who is the official Roman judge, says in Luke 23, 4, I find no fault against this man. But even Pilate, you know, his wife tried to warn him in a dream, have nothing to do with this man, but he swept up along with the crowd. You know, as Gerard depicts it, blind anger becomes a contagion. And Pilate and all of the rulers are caught up in the epidemic. And this is David's description that Peter is going to quote in Acts 25. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And even Peter is caught up in the contagion. You remember Peter around the fire in the high priest courtyard. Very soon he's violently denouncing, I never knew the man. From the cross even, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And the exposure of this blindness is a key part of the revelation of the gospel. 
Peter says this in one of the first sermons. Now I know, brothers, that neither you nor your leaders had any idea what you were really doing. Given Gerard's notion that the scapegoating mechanism depends upon belief in the guilt of the victim. You know, when the perpetrators acknowledge Christ's innocence, the scapegoating mechanism and the blindness on which it depends, it's exposed. That's part of what it means, that they're converted. The repentance and conversion of this first Christian congregation, it directly pertains to their having participated in the sacrifice of Christ. The willful disobedience that killed him is exposed. It's not a backhanded way to achieve forgiveness, as in Anselm of Canterbury, divine satisfaction, penal substitution. They killed Christ, and in part, you know, the expectation was that his sacrifice would save the nation, save the nation from the wrath of Rome, but also that it would save their religion and temple. The worst evil, is there any worse evil than killing the Son of God? Killing Christ imagines that this sacrifice can propitiate, turn away wrath, the violent wrath of the enemy. At the same time, you know, as with religious myth, the violence within the society, the potential violence of the enemy, the Romans, the violence, I think, inherent to the human heart, it's projected onto God. They think God wants them to do this. The Jews imagine in their ignorance that God demands the sacrifice of Christ because he's sacrilegious, right? This is what comes up at his trial. He's trying to destroy our temple with its sacrificial system. His ultimate crime in their estimate is against the temple and its sacrifices. And this is why they sacrifice Christ. Jesus cites this passage in Hosea. He does it twice in Matthew 9 and 12. He maintains if they had understood it, they would not by implication have condemned him. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. He's the guiltless one. It is not only his death, though, but all murder, the history of murder, which Christ links to their misapprehended religion. If you look at Matthew 23, 34, Jesus claims when he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees that their spiritual blindness is behind the history of murder. Let me read. I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of innocent Abel, the first murder, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the last murder in the Old Testament. Truly I say to you, all this will come upon this generation. He's just saying, here's the history of murder. And now I'm exposing to you the secret hidden since the foundation of the world, the cause of killing. The Pharisees obviously didn't themselves commit these murders, but they encapsulate in their attitude, in their spiritual blindness, the impetus behind murder. 
and this is revealed even in this passage, in their reaction to Jesus. Because it's from this point they're going to plot to kill him. How ironic. They disclaim responsibility to this you know, history of murder. And of course they're, they're not directly responsible. But they've, and, and we shouldn't read this, oh they've inherited the guilt of their forefathers. No, that's not the problem either. But they are distancing themselves. They're scapegoating their forefathers and they perpetuate the problem. This is what Jesus says on down. He says, you build the tombs of the prophets and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. What kind of prophets do they like? Dead prophets. They're going to kill Jesus, the living prophet before them. But it's not just that. They cannot recognize themselves in their forefathers. And because of that, they perpetuate the crime of their forefathers. Their blindness to what they're doing is evident, even as they're doing it. They immediately, you know, this is in verse 54, they say, why, you? that's not true, Jesus. Let's get him. As with Christians, subsequent to this, you know, who scapegoat the Jews, they said, why, them Jews, they killed Jesus, right? Let's get them. They perpetuate the crime, the founding murder, and its propagation. In verse 35 of chapter 13, Jesus says, what has been hidden since the foundation of the world, I now proclaim to you. The murder of Abel at the foundation of the city of Cain is the first in a series of murders upon which the religion, the culture, the cities of mankind are founded. The city of man, you know, Cain and Abel, but Romulus and Remus, you can just go right on through the history of murder. The myth which would deify and cover over the murder of the victim is now exposed. He's now exposed the nature of the human heart. In Christ, what sacrifice hides is now revealed. No longer can we claim that sacrifice and murder are perpetuated by God. As his murder, Christ's murder, and all murder, he says in verse 51, shall be charged against this generation. And of course, the generations that hear this gospel. All that would claim the necessity of his sacrifice perpetuate the law that killed him. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.